Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Well, Min, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm doing great. Uh, thanks for having me, Will. I'm really excited to be here. Absolutely. Thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show. Do you mind giving us a brief bio and some of the big ideas you're interested in? Sure. Um, let's see. My name is Min. I am an early stage investor. I've been an early stage investor in venture for the last four and a half years or so, um, primarily focused on what I call critical industry development. And so I've been backing founders, transforming industries across like shipping and logistics, aerospace, manufacturing, AI, um, first at a firm called Bloomberg Beta, which is a early stage, like $75 million pre-seed and seed stage firm. And then um, most recently launched an accelerator at a company called OnDeck that does um, that looks for the most talented, ambitious people all around the globe and invests, uh, helps them start companies. Um, I often think of it as, what do I like investing in? Uh, building People building at the intersection of bits and atoms, right? Uh, software is kind of magical. We all, most of us probably grew up on the internet, like our generation, um, but we do live in a physical world. And then big ideas. Oh gosh, so many. Um, but let's see, a couple of the things that have probably been really top of mind for me lately. Immigration and talent, um, attracting and retaining the very best minds for the U.S. Um, I think it is not just a good thing to do, but actually of uh, national interest and importance that we maintain technological leadership and economic competitiveness by making sure that the very best minds want to come here, right, and stay here, more importantly. <laughs> um, uh, along that line, I think there's a thread around how do you encourage people to have higher ambitions. Um, I see that a lot with early stage entrepreneurs um, and people who are thinking about starting their next thing. How do you create an environment that encourages them to actually think bigger? Um, because I think that is what pushes progress. Um, industrial progress on that thread. Uh, there is a so much we can talk about, which we can dive into over the next like, you know, 30, 45 minutes. But um, there's a ton of energy and policy changes that I think make right now a really um, exciting time to be building and investing in things like biotech, climate, energy, advanced manufacturing, um, longevity, women's health. Um, so many of these areas, again, that kind of intersect between the bits and atoms. Um, and I've been calling that, I've been referring to it as industrial progress. I think there's a couple different names for it. American dynamism, national um, uh, uh, NAF, there's like a couple of other ways of describing it, but all of it, I think, is pointing towards this um, return to investing in like what makes America great. And then just one other, um, one other thing is like thinking machines. Um, I spent a long time looking into machine intelligence and AI, and I think there is really unique opportunity right now where there's a tremendous amount of really interesting research and commercialization happening on how we'll interact with our digital products in the near future. I love that. That was a lot. <laughs> no, that's great. That's great. I love that. It's, it's a, a great breath there. Um, I, I want to double click on ambition a little bit first because you, you said some interesting things there. What can you do to raise the ambition of, of an individual? Is it putting them in an environment with other ambitious individuals? Is it just telling them it's possible? Is it you know coaching to say, go read these books? How do you think about that? And how do you raise the ambition of people in the early stages of starting companies? Amazing. I think there's a couple different ways. I'm a really big um, I have a tremendous amount of respect and admiration for the work that uh, Daniel Gross um, and Tyler Cowen have done over the last several years. Um, uh, Daniel is the co-founder or the founder of a company called Pioneer, where I think a lot of his hypothesis was, how do you find really, really entrepreneurial, wonky, talented people from all around the globe, put them into a digital environment? And so he, I think he's an immigrant from Israel, um, if he's listening, please correct me. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he was solving, I think, his own problem of how do you, he came from, you know, abroad to the States and found this community of people that were really ambitious and therefore uh, expanded the notion of what was possible. And I think that's a consistent theme around how do you put yourself in an environment. So I totally think that plays a role. I also think there's something to be said about models 
Um, I think when you can see someone else who feels like you, but maybe one or two steps ahead, it makes the it makes the pro- it makes whatever you want to do next like much more attainable and achievable, right? Um, uh, and it's a little bit different than having like celebrities, which is like um, like one step more removed. Where sure you can have like role models on television or movies um, that make you excited and make it feel possible. But I think there's something a little bit more grounded where, yeah, if you know like a friend of a friend who um, went to Harvard and you're, you know, you grew up in like middle America and like, you know, in um, in like a small town and you didn't know that going to an Ivy League institution, for example, like was possible or achievable for you, having a model of somebody who had done it before, I think um, makes such a big difference. So like environment, having models, and then just finding that really um, like critical person who actually believes in you, right? And then that's usually the reason why people want to keep paying it forward because somebody took a chance on you. Um, and so there's like this interesting nexus of how do you find that person um, and do you need to put yourself in a different environment to be able to find that person? I love that. I love that. Uh, I want to move on now and talk about industrial progress. Um, we, we've seen a lot of, you know, talk in the discourse recently about American diamondism and and wanting to focus on building new industrial, you know, capacity within this country, kind of reshoring a lot of what we've we've traditionally done here. Um, I, I'm curious. It seems like almost like a counter cyclical for that to be happening because interest rates are rising now. It seems like capital is going to get more expensive. And it feels to me like a lot of these businesses will be more capital intensive, significantly more capital intensive than more traditional software businesses. Um, do you think that there, there are some headwinds that need to be overcome there? And is that just, uh, is there still enough capital available? It's not really going to matter that much. Or do you think there will be significant headwinds to big companies in the industrial space that are trying to get spun up? now? I mean, it is capital intensive. Um, I think the headwinds are a little, uh, there's some like, actually, there are two headwinds that I probably see as really important things to overcome. One is basic R&D. I think there is, um, there's a trade-off that America as a, like that we made as a country and as a world when we decided to globalize, right? Um, and some of these things are cyclical where, and this is just happens to be, I think, one of the most globalized economies we've ever had in human history, which is why it is the way it is right now. Um, but we made a trade-off, which was great. We can... Um, we could make trade cheaper by working with a lot of other countries outside of the U.S. Um, uh, because we have access to cheap labor. Um, and therefore, like offshore, a bunch of like how we actually make the goods that we use, eat, you know, um, rely on. Um, now, you know, after like 30, 40 years of that, uh, the cost is we've forgotten how to use our hands and how to, um, not like you and me necessarily specifically, but like as, a, as like a culture um, that we don't know necessarily how to build things. Um, so that's a headwind where I think there's uh like knowledge that was lost um, that we need to actually like retrain a lot of people because many of the individuals who have have had this knowledge previously are well into their 60s, right? Like 50s and 60s. I started my career actually as a data analyst working at a financial services company called Bloomberg LP. And I worked on this big R&D migration project. It was like eight months of work. And one of the things that we were trying to do is uh, Bloomberg serves a lot of like really high frequency trading um, companies and like our clients are like, you know, they're making decisions based on like millimilliseconds of data transfer. Um, and so it's like relatively high risk because millions of dollars are are at hand. Um, but a lot of our software infrastructure was written in COBOL, which is like a programming language that like nobody really knows how to write anymore because it was written literally by the founder. Um, like the CTO had written this back in like the 70s. Um, and so, you know, things like that where we've just forgotten how to do some of those things. Um, I had another similar like related anecdote about how the New York City, I used to live in New York. I currently reside in San Francisco, but um, I'm a big fan of the MTA. And um, I, I heard this story recently about how uh, the MTA has pushed off like upgrading a lot of their transportation infrastructure because they, because literally nobody knows how to like move the dials um, to like figure out like how how the trains work, um, and so they have to make this trade off at some point where okay, it, it will be so broken that we have to just rip the whole thing out and replace it because to repair it we don't we like literally don't know how. Um, so there's a knowledge headwind, um, 
And then uh, like R&D headwind, where I think like we're still uh, having to do like basic science research into like how do you uh, make like the most advanced chips? How do you do um, like novel like biotech uh, research to be able to do like genetic modifications on like our food, um, for example? Um, and then labor. Right. I'm sure we'll touch on that in a, uh, in a bit, too. Uh, but I think, again, it kind of comes down to like, well, you can pour billions and billions of dollars into building factories and, you know, changing, making policy incentive changes. But if we literally don't have enough people to do the jobs that we want them to, um, then we're kind of at a loss. It's a huge, huge problem. I, I was in Norfolk last week and I, I went past the naval shipyards up there. And, you know, they just everyone is be- begging for labor. Um, but mm. the problem is like a lot of these programs, they get cut. You know, let's say the littoral combat ship, if we cut that. I, I believe there's a big example of this recently with maybe it was one of the submarines or maybe it was the littoral combat ship. I'm not sure. But they, they cut all the expert, you know, they cut the program. All those people retire. They go do something else. And then, you know, you want to spin up a new ship project and you just can't do that because those people, right. they don't exist anymore. Uh, how do you think about uh, how we solve these kind of labor issues you mentioned? Is it more immigration? Is it, uh, high, is it more high-skilled immigration? Is it better training, upskilling? What do you think that looks like? I mean, the short answer to that is, like, it's not one one size fits all, right? Like there's no silver bullet and a panacea to solving like labor shortage issues across the country. Um, uh, that's the nuance to take. Um, I've thought a lot about this. Um, at Bloomberg Beta, uh, we were investing in what we call the future of work. I think we are we are the only venture firm to have to have established that as our core thesis, um, or the first rather. And so we've invested in lots and lots of different kind of like future of work companies. Um, you think about Codecademy, Replit, Masterclass, so on and so forth. Um, and I really think that solving workforce challenges comes down to three things. You either have reskilling companies. Um, the cost of that is that it's often it, it's often time intensive, and uh, especially for things that are not knowledge based, knowledge work based. Um, Two is you literally have to like grow more workers uh, and we happen to have a bit of a global fertility crisis on our hands. So that one's like a very long time horizon um, solution. And then um, the most tractable and most exciting to me solution to workforce challenges is Im- like importing like the very best people, right? Like immigration. Um, and so, you know, we used to I mean, the United States was literally, if anybody's a fan of Hamilton, literally built by immigrants, right? Um, and so uh, I think it's a return to, like, American ideals and the roots where you want to attract and retain the very best, smartest people to come here, do research, commercialize it, build companies, scale them. I am the daughter of an immig- of, um, on- immigrant entrepreneurs. Um, I was born in South Korea. And, like, we literally came here to pursue the American dream, Right. And I think it's the most tractable solution to solving a lot of our workforce challenges today. That's great. That's great. I, I'm curious, do you see technological solutions to the immigration problem? Um, it, it seems like uh, the political angle is, is somewhat intractable and, and very difficult to deal with at some level. I mean, hopefully we make some progress there, but it seems like like very difficult at some level. It's a hot button issue. Uh, yeah. Are there things we can do with technology to make it uh, easier to get more people over here into the, uh, the United States? I think so. Um, there are a bunch of really fun, like technological solutions. There's ways to automate a lot of the work um, that goes into uh, making immigration more accessible and transparent, right? And I think... Um, and then, uh, and, and I think like that's very, that's happening today, right? Uh, like the digitization of a lot of the paper manual processes um, that uh, kind of bogs down a lot of like the administrative work that is in, um, that is involved in these pathways. Um, there are companies that are building like legal information services, right? Um, I've been looking into a lot of companies that are doing this right now. There's a uh, like companies like LegalPad and Boundless and obviously like LegalZoom existed well before like years ago. Um, And there's a number of different startups, at least from like the Silicon Valley style of like, yay, we can like tech solve our way through a lot of these problems. Um, And so that's exciting. Uh, There are like technological advances that I think knock on wood could be very interesting where you have like language models um, and like AI, uh, like research into new like AI techniques around like how do you now, um, how do you manipulate text, right? Um, And so for example, if you are a talented researcher who is like a postdoc that we think that we should, you should stay here um, and continue to contribute to the U.S. economy, um, there's probably like a, so much like 
that you've written and published. And like there's like a whole history of like your work available on the Internet somewhere in some shape or form. Um, today, even like we can crawl all of that. We can crawl the web for you and the work that you are that you are attributed to and then craft like the very best like biography about your work and your contributions that maybe we can you know, turn over to USCIS and say, hey, this is why this person's extraordinary, right? And so you think about GPT-3, like Dolly, like all of these like new um, like core tech uh, evolutions that I think could really contribute to it. Um, And then there's, uh, and I kind of want to touch on one thing you just said, which was policy feels like an intractable problem. But I think what makes me really optimistic right now is that We've had a wave of really big wins from the policy side that I think um, make it really exciting to sit at the intersection of like Silicon Valley entrepreneurial. When I say Silicon Valley, by the way, I don't necessarily mean like tied to the Bay Area, but more of like the ethos of Silicon Valley of like we can tech solve our way out of big problems. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that optimism, um, that uh, the intersection of that and like the old guard, like historically old guard, like D.C. legislative, like um, government uh, collaboration. And so, you know, you think about the CHIPS Act and um, the Inflation Reduction Act, like both of which are respectively focused on manufacturing and semiconductor and reshoring American manufacturing to climate energy, reducing the cost of moving over to a more like energy-efficient economy, um, both of those are huge wins and kind of like, you know, years and years and years in the making um, that tell me at least that there is this like zeitgeist and cultural appetite um, to make policy changes that also work in tandem with technological advances. So maybe these these immigration challenges may be more tractable than they Mm -hmm. at first appear. Correct. Yeah, yeah. I mean, really, literally at the beginning of the year in January, the Biden administration um, announced a couple of key like policy actions. Um, and I'm going to talk about them because like I feel like more people should totally know about this. Yeah. Uh, and it, um, But so there are a couple of visa pathways, particularly for what we like call extraordinary persons. Um, these are like the O-1, the EB-1, the J-1, which is like a trainee visa, and then the National Interest Waiver. These are the four, these are four like underused visa pathways that the Biden administration made explicitly much more clear about the qualifications and evidence required to, to, um, uh, to like uh, be eligible to receive them. So when you think about immigration, I think most people, um, especially from like a public political, you know, uh, like media a frenzy thing, um, think about the H-1B, right? Uh, right? Which is like if you're employed by a big company, um, you uh, apply for an H-1B. And then the the uh, the unfortunate part of the H-1B is that there's actually like so many people that apply. Um, there's like hundreds of thousands of people every year that apply and it's capped. Um, and there's only like yeah. 60, there's only 65,000 um, spots basically. And so you're kind of like out of luck if you don't get it that year. And I've had a number of friends who have been unfortunately like deported. Right. Um, yeah. But the cool part is that these other visas are underutilized, much more clear, and especially for high-skilled like STEM talent or like entrepreneurial talent, um, it's a lot more accessible than people might think. Um, and so I'm really excited about some of the both like policy and like side projects like in the entrepreneurial ecosystem that are really trying to take advantage of these um, of these new recent changes. That's great. That's great. It's it's a uh, that's very encouraging. It's very encouraging to hear that there are there are options there. Um, Ben, I I'm going to change gears a little, a little bit, and, and and I've got a question for you. Mm-hmm. What is common knowledge in your field that uh, lay people might find surprising? Ooh, I feel like this is like waiting for a hot take tweet. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Let's see. Um, I mean, in early stage venture, I think there's this notion of quote unquote being contrarian, um, and it's become a little bit of a trope uh, as like the best way to make returns, um, and and I think what is less or so that's common knowledge that um, some of the very best investments by the very best investors in in this field have not been obvious on day one. Right. Um, and so I think about that often because I don't think it's about being contrarian for the big sake of being contrarian, but it's remembering that some of the very outlier companies uh, you think about, I don't know, like SpaceX, Tesla, 
Amazon, Google, like these big iconic companies that have been around now for almost 20 years, they were like really weird and not obvious. And a lot of the times it took like a very special, uh, like forward thinking person to just take a leap of faith, right? Um, one of my favorite stories, this is like Silicon Valley lore, and I'm sure someone will correct me on the details here, but you know, um, like way back in like 1999, um, Larry Page and Sergey Brin uh, were researchers who met John Doerr, who is a partner at this like storied Silicon Valley like Sandhill firm called Kleiner Perkins. Um, and when they had the meeting, they had like no business plan, like no revenues. It was like technology. Like this was way before they thought about AdSense and AdWords as like a business model. Um, so it was just like literally like research that they wanted to organize like information on the web. Um, and John Doerr actually, uh, I forget what book this is in, but um, his recollection or his recounting of the of that meeting was like, how big do you think it could be? Um, and he himself was like mentally thinking, I don't know, like maybe it's like a billion dollar business, you know, like these guys are really smart, like I'll put a small check in. Um and Larry Page and Sergey Brin were like, oh, no, this is like a $10 billion business, um, like for sure. Like they were just like really confident about it. And now, you know, post facto, we know that it's actually like nearly like a trillion dollar business, you know, um, or could be. Um, and so I think about stories like that where, yeah, it took just like a special person to meet the entrepreneurs and be able to take a leap of faith. Bezos is... This is now like a John Doerr like tribute. Um, uh, I'm a big fan. <laughs> um, but um, Amazon is like a similar story. Uh, you know, Amazon's a little bit different because like Jeff Bezos like came from a finance background and, you know, he, he's like a businessman. He's like a proper businessman. Um, and so he had like, like notions of what a business model would be. But um, he had raised he had basically exhausted like all of his like friends and family financing, like personal dollars before he went to a couple of like other like early like what we now call like angels. Um, I don't think we called them that back then in like 1995. Um, but he raised like a million dollars, which roughly would be like the equivalent of like two today. And it was like a quote unquote pre round. And that was like him selling this notion of like, I'm going to sell books on the internet, which now we look back and it's so obvious that it could have, it, it was that and then some. But could you imagine in like 1995? I mean, I was like a, a baby at the time, but, um, but like, could you imagine 1995 somebody thinking like, I'm going to sell books on the internet? Like, that's weird. Um, and so, yeah, I just think that, and I've had this experience personally where, you know, when I was investing at Blue Beta, um, like we we actually invested in a transportation company um, that is called A to B, and they do payments infrastructure for trucking. Trucking and trucking is a massive industry. Um, but when we invested in that company, um, uh, my partner Roy Bahat um, led that deal, and it was intended to be a commuter transit company between like for like. Googlers, basically, or everybody else but Googlers, because Google had their own bus. Um, but it was to take people from San Francisco down to Palo Alto or Menlo Park, and they were going to build a business around that. And so it was transportation related. But we invested in that company. Within three months, COVID hit. And so, to be honest, I think we were all thinking, oh, my gosh. We basically it's lost done. our money within three months. Like, this, there's no way this yeah. is going to, like, how are, we, how are we ever going to recoup this? Um, and like Vignan and Harshita, the co-founders, are extraordinary. And they went out and they spent like two months doing a bunch of idea validation, like literally going to gas stations and talking to truckers and then came back with a new idea um, and like pivoted the entire business, which has now become like wildly successful. Um, and I think it was recently like, you know, on Forbes's, you know, like companies to watch to become like next unicorn, blah, blah, blah. Um, and it, it was it's an extraordinary story and a testament to, I think, when the original investment, we were making it, like, it was really weird and, like, not everybody around the table was a fan. <laughs> um, and there are several, several stories like that across our portfolio. Um, and it is a, and it only makes sense, like, in hindsight. Well, what do you think, uh, what do you think sets apart a team like the, that founded A to B versus uh, uh, another team. Like, like, was there something special? Is there something special about the founders of that team that that really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it, I, I don't think many people would survive that kind of uh, challenge, right? <laughs> In the business context. Totally, totally. Oh, I love, love, love this question um, because I do early stage investing, right? And so I've done mostly like pre seed and seed, um, and so um, 
I think about this from like a day one, like day negative one almost. Um, and I think what I have observed consistently time and time again is that the most extraordinary people that start companies have been problem solving, like are natural problem solvers and have been problem solving for years and years and years. Um, and, and you see it and you see it not just from like a business perspective. Um, it's not necessarily the case that they've like they're like serial entrepreneurs, and you know, instead of instead of like selling lemonade, they were like you know building like like online businesses when they were sixteen. Like that's not what I'm talking about, but rather they've just been problem solving. Um, and so what I and so the consistent observation I've just seen is a lot of founders are like obsessive about something and then they're like I just think it could be better and they just go do that thing um, whether or not it makes sense for it to be a business right um, and so yeah I think like the A to B founders are like that um, we also invest in a company called Flexport which does shipping and logistics um, I built software for super shipping and logistics um, uh, it's called Flexport like there are just a number of these companies that are ba- uh, that are led by problem solvers. That's awesome. That's awesome. I, how, do you, I, how do you know when you meet someone that they're a problem solver? Is it, you know, you just like, you hear them talking mm-hmm. about stories or like, like that they start, you know, describing problems and, and how they were thinking about solving them and, and think you think they can really rise to the challenge. Are there any common thread threads there you've seen? So I forget who this is or I might be misremembering, but I think it's Mark Suster. Um, who had this great blog post from years and years ago called Invest in Lines, Not Dots. And I think what's nice is my preference, and every investor might feel differently, but my preference is that you get to know someone for long enough um, that you get to see them in a couple different environments over a handful of different interactions, and you get to start seeing like how they respond to the questions that you ask. Um, maybe it's a little bit of a tough question. Do they get defensive? Do they actually Have they thought about it? Um, uh, um, can they even preempt or preempt like the constructive criticism that you might have about their business uh, or the market that they're going after? Um, why are they? Why do they have such high conviction, right? Uh, and so I really subscribe to that notion of like investing in lines, not dots, because I think it's really hard. You can get a really great sense for do you vibe fit with the person within like a 15, 20 minute meeting um, right. or like a thirty minute coffee, but do you? Can you find? Can you find enough pieces of interactions um, that give you conviction about their ability to problem solve? That happens, I think, over the course of some time. Um, and that could be two weeks. That could be two months. could be two years. Uh, but for me, I've always really appreciated when I've gotten to know somebody over the course of several interactions because this is because the moment that we say that we're going to work together and I'm going to work with you as a um, to help you make sure that you can build this company into something successful, um, that is like a ten-year potential commitment that we're making to each other. Um, right. And I, I hope like I don't take that light, lightly, and I hope founders also um, don't take that lightly. Um, so yeah, so I think like there's a lot level of consistency that comes with it. That makes sense. That makes sense. I really like that. I really like that. Um, another question here: uh, mm-hmm. Why now? Yeah, you know, th- this is a great question you often get if you're you're uh, starting a business. You know, then why now? Uh, yeah. When does it matter, and, and when does it matter less? Ooh, uh, so part of it depends on the kind of business that you build. It's a great question, actually, um, because if you're building a quote unquote deep tech company, um, which like generally tends to mean it is something based on like fundamental research or some deeply technical hard challenge. Um, I think the why now matters a lot because it literally tells you whether or not this technology is viable. Um, I've been spending a lot of time in like uh, women's health and reproductive health in particular or the intersection of reproductive health and longevity and biotech. Um, And there's a lot, there's a dearth of just basic research, right? And so uh, we only started um, really doing research on women's bodies uh, for the last, like, 20 years, like, 30 years, maybe, Um, basically. I think it was with the NIH's Revitalization Act in 1993. Um, And so uh, it's only been, like, 30 years that we really, like, included women in clinical clinical research. Um, And so we just don't really know. And we still don't include, like, pregnant women in most clinical research um, because they're considered vulnerable populations. And so we just don't know, right? There's just a lot of stuff that we don't know about 
hormone levels and like our fertility and our reproductive health um, and how that all works together um, in our bodies. And so that to me is an example of like, you need to have a really strong why now because there's probably like some fundamental research that's going to lead to some breakthrough. Um, and so more recently, I think that's been top of mind for a lot of like uh, scientists and researchers and entrepreneurs trying to tackle like the fertility crisis, whether it's from like really basic research on tracking like your hormone levels over the course of like, similar to how we all track our health health now, right? Like our blood, glu- blood glucose levels, but can you do that for like your hormone levels because it might have some impact on like your general well-being or some way or your general overall health. Um, all the way to something that feels a little bit more like science fiction, which is like, cool, can we like grow babies outside of the womb? Um, and like, uh, and do you start maybe with um, building like bio bags for like really, really early prematurely born babies? Um, maybe, right? But all of that is not, is really hard to do well if you don't have fundamental research underpinning it. So like, I think why now for hard tech, deep tech, whatever you want to call it, call it um, is really important for that reason. Um, And then for other markets, sometimes it's not that relevant, right? Uh, Like if you think about Uber Eats, DoorDash, like Instacart, Pinterest, like a a couple of these like consumer social type companies, um, it's not necessarily the case that you needed to why now. Maybe you could make the case that it was like smartphone adoption because this is like, you know, 2010s um, and enough people owned an iPhone um, and enough people had a cultural appetite for uh, on-demand services. Um, I think you see some of that now with um, like Web3 and type, you know, companies where, yeah, there's enough of a cultural shift on in wanting to like own parts of the internet, right? Um, that it's not enough to just be creators, but why don't you also be able to have a stake in the things that you build online? Um, but uh, But it's not necessarily obvious to me that like, it has to be underpinned by some novel technical, you know, shift um, that happened. So that's kind of how I think about it. And um, it is additive in other businesses that are not deeply technical. But um, how would I say, uh, like, necessary but not sufficient in deeply technical fields either. That makes sense. That makes sense. I, I want to talk more about uh, deeply technical fields in frontier tech now. Mm-hmm. Um uh, you mentioned some of the areas you're, you're excited about, but but can you talk about a couple of the others? Like like what areas are you excited about in Frontier Tech? What is Frontier Tech? And, and why do you think there's been a renaissance of recently of people being interested in it and investing in it? Yeah. Can I ask you how, what you how you define Frontier Tech? I feel like you've spoken to a number of people who actually pay attention in this world too. That's great. That's great. Yeah, let's see. Um, if I had to define it, it's, uh, you know, technology... I primarily think about it in the sense of uh, usually physical, like, you know, what can we do in the real physical world? I mean, it can be like, you know, GPT-3. We had this, we talked to Stable Diffusion folks recently. Mm-hmm. I think they're doing yeah. those kinds of things. Uh, it, it's tough. I, I, I guess when you look at things and you're like, okay, there could be a real breakthrough. There could be a real discontinuous um, yeah. path of innovation that could be commercialized soon. That's kind of what I think of mm-hmm. as frontier tech. I don't know. I don't know. Amazing. No, I actually, I think that's great. Um, I love that. Like things that inspire like breakthroughs, right? Like there's some kind of step change um, difference um, that this like piece of technology or company makes. Um, I have a pretty like broad definition, which is anything that like really increases agency, um, which is like super broad, but that's like my definition of it. And I think within it, it's like a question of like, where, where do you focus? Right. Um, because I think lots of people have different interpretations of what frontier tech is. Um, and so for me, like I've spent a lot of my time in like AI, um, and robotics. Um, and so that's like where, uh, that's where I like started looking into these startups in this market. And then more recently, I've spent a lot of time in like longevity, which I think is also uh, longevity and biotech, which I think is really, really exciting. And there is a lot of like commercialization of research that I think will happen over the course of the next 10 years that will like fundamentally change um, the food that we eat, like the health that we preserve, um, how long we live, right? Um, it's just and, uh, um, and then the last like two probably um, are around like space, <laughs> uh, you know, the last time we really had a space race was back in like the 1960s. Um, 
And now I think there's just been really exciting like renaissance of how do we get people to Mars? Like how do we become a multiplanetary species? Um, and that's like really science fiction and out there, but like that is basically the next frontier, right? Like we don't have other continents to conquer anymore on this earth. Um, we have to go elsewhere. Um, so that space and then obviously a lot of the work in climate and energy and um, the overarching like zeitgeist around making sure that we create like a much more energy efficient economy, um, sustainable future. Um, the, like, so many of my, like, smartest friends have basically gone into those fields. And so maybe that's how I might define, like, frontier tech. It's, like, all the fields that whatever my smartest friends going into, like, that's frontier. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, I, I'm curious on the, on the climate, uh, climate aspect that, you know, I, I've seen a lot of people pivoting into climate, thinking about climate. One of the big challenges I see is that it seems to be like mostly a public good to fix climate change. It's it, it's tough to capture the upside, you know, and internalize kind of the upside if that makes sense. Um, especially so if we you know carbon capture, it's difficult, right? Because who wants to pay to capture carbon? You know, you can just produce it. Um, I'm curious. Do you have any thoughts there? There, what what do successful companies look like in the climate space? Is it more companies like Tesla uh, or something else? Mm-hmm. Um, ooh, okay. I won't be able to dive as deeply into like carbon capture. That's like not some place that I've spent a lot as much time in. But um, I think I have like two parts to this question, two answers to this question. One of which is uh, I think that creating new markets takes time. And gotcha. um, historically, I think you are right that a lot of like climate activism was like uh, like a lot of doing good. Right. And it was very like ESG impact, um, which which is good, uh, like, you know, po- like net positive for the world, um, but not necessarily well incentivized for the very best entrepreneurial talent to go and work in them. Right. Um, and so a lot of the companies that I'm most excited by in like the climate energy space are or in the in the carbon space in particular, I think are building like big R&D projects. Um, And a lot of that research into like literally like direct air capture, right? Like taking carbon out of the air and then storing it underground. Um, Like that is crazy. Like it's crazy cool that we can do that. Um, But that's going to take time. Um, And then you'll have to build the proper like business model around it. Um, And so I I do think that some of these things just like have to take on a decade-long horizon, um, especially if you're thinking about either building something in it or joining a company in it or putting money behind it. Um, Like you really have to think long-term. On the flip side, I think the other part that's exciting about energy, maybe less like climate per se, but is um, I love that you mentioned Tesla because I think it's a great canonical example of a company that isn't obviously a quote-unquote climate company, right? Um, but it is just fundamentally building the product that they're building in a more sustainable or intentional intentional way um, and making it accessible to its end customers. Um, and so, like, you, I don't know, all roads lead back to Bezos. Um, but, like, what do customers care about? Like, you want it either cheaper, faster, or better, right? And so yep. if you're going to build a product and you incentivize enough people who are building those things um, to do it in a more energy efficient way, they probably will, right? And then if you give enough incentives for the customers of the people building those products enough reason to buy those, they probably will. Um, And so the IRA, I think, is like this really big tailwind um, for an entirely new generation of like industrial companies that just get built from the ground up in a much more energy efficient, energy intentional way. Um, So you think of, you know, like, so you got Tesla instead of Ford. Um, And so like, think about every other potential company that is like, that was built a hundred years ago. Um, They'll get built today. In a better, more robust way. Sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's my hope. I mean, and I have friends who are working in, like, battery technology, building, like, industrial, like, appliances, um, and they're just doing it. It's the same output, but the output just happens to be, like, cooler and better. I love that. I love that. That's great. Um, Can you talk about language models and human-computer interfaces and and some of the excitement around that that you've seen recently? Oh, okay. So the reason I love, like, 
like computer, human computer interaction. The reason I got into it to begin with is because I, I am like one of those people that will raise my hand to have a brain implant. Um, <laughs> maybe not like, maybe not like clinical trial, maybe like after that, but um, okay. like happily be a guinea pig for that kind of thing. Um, and I've always felt that out. Uh, I'm a big believer that your environment shapes you, like your physical environment. And that also includes like the things that you use on a day-to-day basis. Um, for example, I've uh, uh, like our devices, right? Like I, you and I are talking right now on a laptop. Um, I have an iPhone. Um, I have an iPad. Uh, and each of these I kind of use slightly differently. Like, yes, I will do email on all of them. Um, but I try not to, like, I try to use, like, iPad for, for like, YouTube watching, right? Versus, like, if I'm doing, like, deep work, I'll use my laptop. Versus, like, phone is, like, for on the go. Um, and so I do have, I, I do think that, like, your devices kind of influence the behavior and, like, how you use them. Um, but they're all really constrained, right? Uh, like, I grew up watching like Minority Report, right? And like all these like science fiction movies that detail like diff- like you can like manipulate the air and, you know, send data across to the person like in the next room just with the swipe of your hand. Um, and we don't have that yet. Uh, but like clearly we have the imagination to build, to, to want something like that. Um, and so I've been really excited about a lot of the work recently around like the intersection of language models and AI and new human computer interface design. Um, there's this company uh, called Replit um, that builds like integrated developer environments. Um, it is a Bloomberg portfolio company. And Amjad's amazing. And he's built this amazing, incredibly innovative, like entrepreneurial team um, that like churn out like projects, truly. Um, and one of their recent ones is called Ghostwriter. And it's like um, an AI assisted uh, code, like code generator. Um, so it's not like itself novel necessarily, uh, like Microsoft's GitHub has been doing this for the last like couple of years, I think, um, with Copilot, um, but the, but two things, one is that they've just gotten a lot better. Uh, and then two is the cool part about Ghostwriter that I was like a little bit like blown away by is they do, um, they have this feature called swipe to code. And so like as, as the AI helps you like generate the code, you can either accept or deny by like swiping. And now that I've said it and now that you've like now that if you see the demo, it feels obvious afterwards. But I love demos like that where it kind of totally makes you think differently about what's possible with our devices. Right. Um, And that's like a really simple example. But uh, like there's no notion of like depth when you when we use our digital devices today. Right. Right. Uh, like the you know I'm looking at you right now through a video screen, but there's no real notion of like depth, um, and there's not a real notion of like memory, right? And so um, let's say I was taking a picture of somebody, um, and then you know like three weeks later I came back to the same spot, and is there a feature that I could like toggle on because I want to remember like who was in the room when I went to that happy hour, right? Um, and so there's this like notion of like the memory palace that you have in your brain, and like can we recreate that with our devices? Um, and so that's just been something that is not obviously yet like a company to me right now, but there are a number of people like in like the tech ecosystem that are thinking and working on um, like really good ways to demonstrate how this like how how like our tech can work for us basically in a way so that we're not just like um, like a lot of the language model like auto generated like oh my god like AI is going to take over our jobs like that feels really constrained to me. Because, like, human beings are really, really creative. And when you give them new tools, I think we figure out ways to use the tools, right? Um, And if if you give, um, there's this amazing researcher named Linus, Linus Lee, he's on Twitter. Uh, But he said something recently that really, really impacted me, which was our tools should evoke virtuosity. And so if you give people really, really constrained tools, they won't evoke virtuosity. And so great that like you can use an auto-generated copywriter, but you won't know what's like really fully possible then. I love that. I love that. that that's, that's, I, yeah, I love that framing. That, that's a really good framing. Um, I, I want to pivot a little bit, but I want to talk about this, uh, about Frontier Tech and, and what the big barriers are to, to getting more mm-hmm. of it in the real world right now. Oh, what are those big barriers you see? Is it you know money? Is it talent? Is it something else? What do you think? Mm-hmm. 
Um, maybe I'll... S- It'll depend on the market, but I think it's a combination of basic research, talent, capital, and policy, right? It's like all four of those forces working in tandem to make sure that we can continue innovating in these areas, right? And so, and we've touched on this um, so far, but, you know, like a lot of foundational scientific capacity, like we just need like a lot more R&D, right? Whether it's like genetic engineering technologies uh, to like reprogramming ourselves, um, do like synthetic biology so that we don't have to necessarily, so that we can like create cells out of like stem cells into like new cells versus having to like get them out of our bodies, because which is very expensive and like higher risk. Um, things like that uh, to talent, which you've touched on, which again, like I'm going to come back to immigration. Like that is like the most tractable near-term thing that we can do to make sure that we can get people to do our research. Um, capital is an interesting one because I think there's uh, there's like different capital needs for when, especially frontier tech, goes from zero to one, one to two, and then two to pl- like whatever, 100,000 plus, right? Um, zero to one can, in some regard, be cheap, uh, can be cheaper than I think people think um, because a lot of like the hardware components um, in, you know, in like robotics and advanced manufacturing, like some of those things are now like off the shelf, right? And so they're a lot cheaper than we thought, than we, um, that they were before, right? And so instead of like your first prototype costing you $150,000, like you might be do be able to do it for 80, right? Which is like non-trivial. Um, and so capital for zero to one, I think in some ways is the barrier to entry is like lower than it, it was before, like call it 10 years ago. Um, one to 10, I think is actually really hard. Uh, and so like that's where I think we need like lots more people excited and investors excited to put in like, you know, that 10, 10, 15 million dollars, because that's when most that's when founders are going from prototype to like now serving and delivering to their first handful of customers, right? And like only then after you've like proven that you can actually build those first 10, can you now attract enough capital and excitement and interest to be able to like really full steam ahead, go and like produce a hundred or a thousand, right? Um, And so that's a little bit more of a nuanced answer and like my opinion on kind of like how uh, the level of importance to capital. Um, and I think like that gap from like one to 10 is actually like one of like the most critical areas where we could use a lot more, uh, um, risk taking. Why do you think there's less risk taking there at that, that one to 10 stage? Oh, because I think like it's still a leap of faith. Um, and so like, it's the same, you know, if a founder came to you and said, Hey, I want to build this, you know, uh, build this robot or like build a factory or build an industrial appliance of some kind. Um, zero to one is like you're, you're investing on the basis of founder market fit, like founders domain expertise or their capacity to actually build this and like the market opportunity potentially. Um, but the zero to one is like, cool, I built the prototype uh, and it works. But now like you still have to take the same leap of faith. Um, and it's not necessarily any more like market de-risked necessarily um, because it's probably only been like 12 months. Um, and so I just think that sometimes it's like more of a, um, it, yeah, just like a little bit of fear where, oh, okay, you hit all the milestones that we agreed upon okay, cool, but now we need to go from, like, putting in, like, two, like a million or $2 million to, like, five times that amount, right? right. Um, it's, not, it's, it's not totally obvious to me that, like, your customers are going to pay or that you have a customer base that will pay hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions, um, in the next, like, three to five years. That's just a lot more difficult. It's just a lot more difficult to get that level of conviction. Yeah, exactly. Um, And so, you know, capital. um, And then the last one is policy. But like I said, I think the exciting part is that the government seems like um, they're really, really aware and they care that um, these areas, especially around industrial progress, are really critical to the natural national interest. And so there's both political will and dollars. um, And so the, you know, like the administration um, is putting their money where its mouth is. Love that. Love that. Uh, Mid, we're running up on time here. Um, what piece of a career advice, especially for people working in tech and startups, you know, do you think is important but uh, maybe underrated? Maybe something you can impart to the audience that they might could uh, utilize. Ooh, um, two. I will say two pieces of advice, and I'm paying it forward because they are two pieces of advice that I received early in my career, and they have 
they have continued to be true. Um, one is write online. Um, you, that doesn't mean you have to tweet, by the way. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I've been writing online for the better part of over a decade, actually. Um, and um, it's always been a really great way to share ideas that are in my brain um, with other people. And it gives insight to others about what I'm thinking about. Um, and then and, and those ideas, like, propagate faster than if you were to try to have 10 conversations, right, um, versus you can reach 100 people just by writing a blog post about, you know, my latest thinking on, like, women's health. Um, I have not actually published that piece yet. Uh, but, um, but writing online. And then great cold emails. Um, a really good cold email. I started, I got into startups um, when I lived in New York, I just cold emailed a lot of people in like tech ecosystem, not because I was trying to like be a VC per se, but yeah. because I was really excited by what they were building. Um, I would like go onto the app store, look up the top apps of the day, and I would like try them and then write oh, unsolicited awesome. feedback. Like truly, I was like 23 and looking back and really cringy. Um, but I would be like, hi, I'm so-and-so, like just like some random person from the internet. Um, and I would write unsolicited feedback to pe uh, to like people building these products. And then lo and behold, like they would invite me to coffee um, because great. they were, you know, they were like, who are you? <laughs> um, but yeah, writing online and then sending great cold emails, like they will take you a lot farther than you might think. Yeah, I definitely second on the uh, cold emails portion. If you can have a genuine kind of uh, well-written cold email, you can get really far in life. It can really help. Totally. Great. This whole podcast is a testament to that. Oh, I know. I know. It, it really is. You know, one day, you know, you, you start writing emails and then you're talking to Vitalik Buterin and Men Kim and, you know, yeah. who knows what, 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 what could happen. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Well, um, Men, thank you so much for taking the time today. Where can people find you? Where should we send them? I am very online. You can find me on Twitter at minicat, M-I-N-N-E-Y underscore cat. And then I also write online at minkim.com. That's great. Thanks, man. Cool. Thank you so much, Will. Special thanks to our sponsor, Bismarck Analysis, for the support. Bismarck Analysis creates the Bismarck Brief a newsletter about intelligence-grade analysis of key industries, organizations, and live players. You can subscribe to Bismarck Brief at brief.bismarckanalysis.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives. Special thanks to Donovan Dorrance, our audio editor. You can check out Donovan's work and music at donovandorrance.com.